It occurred to me uh, that the Bible is a book of desperation. Have you ever thought about all the stories in the Bible are just riddled with desperation? They're riddled with pain, and they are riddled with struggle. They are riddled with a people that is broken, lives are broken, and it's riddled with the echoing call of God to come and to receive healing. And that, I think, is why so frequently as we read the scriptures, Jesus hangs out with the crowd that he hangs out with. We see him frequently with Pharisees, like good religious folks. But um, he always seems to run into conflict with them. But the people who kind of hear Jesus, the people who really kind of take up that mantle, and they, they do crazy things like, like wash his feet with their tears, those are the people who are desperate for God. I've been thinking a lot about this. The quintessential story from Jesus that we all know so well, this, this parable of the prodigal son. You all know that story, right? Does anybody not know that story? Like, we know that story. There's such desperation in that story, such brokenness in that story. This, the son says, forget you, dad. I want to go and live on my own. As a parent, like, I can't imagine the tears that I would weep over Emery or Ezri doing that. Like, there's this, this desperate heart. There's this wonderful picture. I wish I would have thought of it before now. This is sort of... I'm off text, but there's this great picture, uh, this old picture of um, the father holding on to the son, and the son's just like, like grabbing on the father, and the father's looking up to the heavens, and he's just weeping because the prodigal, the lost son, has come home. There's this desperate, desperate thing happening here, and we just read the Bible so flat and so boring. It's no wonder no one's interested in what we have to say because we we make it so flat. In Hosea 2, God says this to his people. He says, therefore, look, I will allure her, and I will bring her into the wilderness, and I will speak tenderly to her, and I will give her vineyards and make the closed valley a door of hope. And there she will answer me as in the days of her youth, as as the time <coughs> when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Lord. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. God's love is pictured here in tenderness, but ferocity, this, this, this desperate desire to, to woo a people who has gone astray, a people who have, who have fallen away, and he's calling out to them to come back to him. Similarly, there's another text. In fact, I made a slide for these ones. When Song of Songs or Canticles. I like that Latin canticles. It sounds fun. It says, on my bed at night I sought him. 
whom my soul loves. I sought him, but I found him not. So I will rise now, and I will go about the city, and in the streets, and in the squares. I will seek him whom my soul loves. I I sought him. I looked everywhere for him, but I I couldn't find him. The watchmen, the watchmen of the city found me as as they went about their rounds, and I said, have you seen him? Have you seen the one that my soul loves? And scarcely had I passed them when I found him whom my soul loves. And I I grabbed him, and I wouldn't let him go until I had brought him home. These echoes of desperate love throughout the scriptures, from God to us and from us to God. And my question for you this morning is, does this echo your passionate love for God? Does this zealous heart characterize the way you experience God and your hunger for him. The zealous pursuit of one uh, is something that if you've ever been in love, you kind of, you kind of know that innately. We, we, we set things aside. We set old friends aside. We set, old, um, we set family aside. We set all kinds of things aside just to chase after this individual. Or if you've had some sort of passion in your life that, that you're like, man, this is the thing I'm after and I'm, I'm, I'm running toward it and I'm, I'm, I'm sacrificing everything so I can, I can have this This one thing, that's what's happening in these stories. And isn't that the way the scriptures describe our need for God? The way that we should experience God is one of consuming hunger. Psalm 63, Oh God, you are my God and earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I'm desperate, O oh God. Psalm 26, 8. O oh Lord, and I like this one especially. O oh Lord, I love the habitation of your house. And the place where your glory dwells. I love you so much. I love to be where you are. I just want to be where you are. I want to be in the room with you. And so wherever you are, I want to go there. So that I can be with you. And then what Jesus says when asked the question, what is the greatest commandment? You shall love the Lord your God. And I spend a lot of time talking about how love uh, here references obedience, references actions, references keeping commandments. And all of that is true. But there is also a desperate emotional piece to this, isn't there? That the love takes place in the will and in the, the mind and in the body. It is a consuming thing that just sort of eats alive the person. When Peter betrays Jesus, you remember the story, uh, Peter denies him in the garden by running away. Then Peter is questioned during the trial of Jesus. I, I, I recognize your voice. You, you're one of, the, one of the people who's from that region, aren't you? No, I don't know the guy. I, didn't I see you hanging out with him at one time? You, you, were, you were one of his friends, aren't you? No, I don't know the guy. No, I, I recognize you. I know I said, no, I don't know him. And Jesus looks at him and sees him. And Peter flees, weeping, because he has betrayed his own heart for fear of his life. And when Jesus encounters him again, privately, on the shores of the beach, the Sea of Galilee, they're eating breakfast together, Jesus looks up and says what? Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? 
Peter, do you love me? So I have that same question today. Do you love God? This whole new series is about that question, love-hate. There are things that God loves and there are things that God hates. And God is looking for a people who will love what he loves and hate what he hates. And this is a topic that is very much lost on us today, I think. We don't think like that. But we have a great battle today in the American church. A great battle between those who suggest that we can progress we can move beyond what the scriptures say. That, that certainly there are things in there that scriptures say, no, God doesn't like this or, or God is in favor of this. And we say, well, you know, that's a product of the time. It's a product of that culture. It's a product of that way of thinking. We sort of progress beyond it. We can move beyond those priorities. And there are other groups of Christians who say, no, we can progress in many ways, but we will never, ever progress beyond what the scriptures command. That those function as a ground floor. And so the question is not, boy, could I know the, the mind of God? The question is, will you seek and find out the mind of God? Because it is readily available to you in the scriptures when it says, God loves this, God hates this. We are a people, we are a church who believes we can know, who believes there's a blank slide, who believe we can know that we can know what God loves and what God hates. And in preparing for this and in thinking like this and in engaging in a series in which I'm going to talk about the things that God loves and God hates, I fully anticipate offending all of you at some point. Maybe not today, but, you know, hold on. We've got a few weeks. Uh, and I, uh, I assume that will happen. I assume that's what happens when God comes and says, this is something I hate that you love. We have a conflict and the problem in us is that some of the things that we love that God hates are so dear and near to our hearts that we can't let it go. As I have been working through this, I have been praying that God would purge me because I have found that there are many things that I love that God hates. And I think that these words are intense words. Love and hate, those are big words, aren't they? I mean, we use them Frivolously, I love pizza, I hate squash, right? It's evil. I mean, we, we use those words like that. And that's not the way I'm using those words. We're talking about like and, and not like. But we're talking about the far end of the spectrum. We're talking about words of intensity. There are things that God loves. He honors them. He holds them near. And those who, who also love what God loves, he honors them and, and holds them near. And there are things that God abhors. They're disgusting. They're vile. He hates them. And I think that these are words of intensity. And I think that if there is anything that is lost on the church today, it is intensity. We do not have an intense faith. We have faith. We have belief. But we don't have intense faith, intense belief. We don't have the kind of zeal that burns in us and sets other things around us on fire. We have this sort of, this sort of brick, the difference between having a small campfire, you know, bricked out behind your house, so your, your, nice, your nice house and your, and your nice lawn, and you, and you take the brick or the cement or whatever, and you make a little fire pin. It's very nice, it's very safe, it's very clean, it's very cozy. Everyone loves to come around. Oh, isn't that nice? It's a nice fire. And then you have burning bonfires. You have forest fires. God came to set forest fires. He came to set people ablaze with love for him so that they might set other people ablaze with love for him. 
So when I say love and hate, I mean love and I mean hate. And I want that to be clear. So there's a fundamental presupposition of this series, a fundamental presupposition. And if you disagree with this, you'll disagree with everything else that I have to say. So if you disagree with this, give me a call. We'll chat. It is this. If you want God, you must love what God loves and you must hate what God hates. And I'll try to make application to these things, but most of them are just kind of written in the text. I hate this. I love this. And so I'm not going to do a lot of sort of interpretive moves. This is sort of just here is the verse, and I want to bring the verse to you so you can, you can t- take it and, and think about it and apply that to your life. What's interesting is how resistant I think we are to this whole concept when in our experience and in our lives, we, we know this innately. My wife loves things. And if I want to have the deepest level of connection with her, I am going to have to love the things that she loves. So a few weeks ago, I talked about her stupid dance shows. We watched these dance shows. You probably shouldn't call them stupid, right? She doesn't like that. Note to self. Right now as I'm talking. These dance shows, we watch these. Like we, we, I love these things that she loves. And there are other things. That's obviously sort of an inane example, but there are things that my wife hates. There are things that I could do that would betray her to the extent that our marriage would be in jeopardy. And I might enjoy those things very much, but if I want a relationship with my wife, if I want to maintain that fellowship with her, I have to eschew those things that she would hate and have nothing to do with them, or I will lose that relationship. We know this, right? Is everybody with me? You know this. We know this in, in inane things like friendships, and we know this in, in work things like your boss likes this, then I like it too, right? I mean, we know this in, in marriage. that there are th- We know this in all of our human experience. Why in the world do we come to God and say, well, he'll, it's okay, he'll get over it. God's okay with everything. It'll be all right. He'll, he'll, he'll forgive it. It won't be, it won't be a big deal. Why, why in the world? Do we attribute something to God that is not true in any other sphere of life? And we know clearly through the scriptures is not true. There are things that God loves and there are things that God hates. And we find that scandalous today, but it is nevertheless true. It is nevertheless true. So for today, what is it that God loves and what is it that God hates? It is this. And if you want to turn to Revelation, this is the text that I'm going to read here in a moment. It is on page uh, 1,030 if you're using the Pew Bible like I am. God loves zeal. He is looking for a people who will be zealous for him. He is looking for a people who are on fire for him. He is looking for a people who will set all treasure and all worldly attachments aside for him. He is looking for people who are zealous. And God despises fakeness. He despises pretense. He despises false religion. He despises religiosity. He despises all of the times that we try to pretend at faith. He would rather you either are in or out, which is why I try to preach either in or out. I mean, the middle ground's no fun anyway, right? Right? We got one witness down front. It's all right. Dan's, Dan's the man. Revelation. Speaking to the church in Laodicea, a famous passage. I know your works, Jesus says, to the church. Like This is, just consider this for a second. You get a message from Jesus. I know your works, and you're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. 
So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I'm rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So I counsel you. Buy from me gold refined in the fire. So that you may be rich and white garments, so that you may clothe yourselves, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. What's so interesting to me about this little chunk of scripture is the the assertion of the church. The church here says, we're rich, we're prospering, things are growing, attendance is up, giving is up. We have all these ministries to all these different things, all kinds of things are going out into the community, and everything looks, all evidence shows that we are on the right track. And yet, what are they? They're self-deceived. Jesus did not come, as I said, to create content, fat, happy people. He came to set people ablaze. And if there's one thing that I am, I am personally after in this series and in this study and in my prayer life right now, it is this, more zeal, more passion. Jesus says, come to me. Come to me and you can buy gold Signifying true treasure, right? Gold that's purified. It's, a, it's true value, true worth. Things that, that, something that will truly last. Take on my white garments because you're clothed in iniquity and you're exposed and you're naked and you're shameful. And take on the white garment that I will give you so that you can be clothed in righteousness and goodness and in peace. And, and, and take from me salve for your eyes. Blindness is this, this trope throughout the scriptures of an inability to see the truth. The inability to see who we are and an inability to see who God is. And what we can do when we go to Jesus is receive salve for our eyes so that we can see our error and we can see his holiness and righteousness and justice and goodness and forgiveness and hope. It's interesting to me that this is the only church, he tells all of them to repent, but this is the church that he says, be zealous. Be aflame. Be be on fire. Why is God so frustrated with apathy or, or lukewarmness in the church? Why is this dispassionate church bother him so? After all, their assertions are probably somewhat true. It's very likely that they were growing. It's very likely that attendance was up. It's very likely. That, that the coffers were full and that the ministries were going out and things were being done. There's all kinds of busyness that is happening in the church. And yet, and yet Jesus says there is no fire in it. There's no life in it. Because there's nothing worse than a faker, right? Nothing worse than somebody who fakes something. Nothing worse than a hypocrite. And we abuse that word. It gets, abu- it gets used against us. You know, the church is full of hypocrites. And, and, and there's a difference between somebody who sort of is living like a hypocrite and someone who does something hypocritical. Does that make sense? 
Like, we make mistakes. You, you catch me on a bad day, right? I mean, it's a bad day. Anybody not had a bad day this week? Perfect all the way through. Right? I mean, we, we make mistakes. That's different than what's being said here. What's being said here is that there are a group of Christians, a group of people who are trying to, to put on airs as though they are following Christ with zeal and fervor, and in fact, they are not. They're liars, pretenders, deceiving others and being deceived. God hates this performance-based religion. He hates it. He says in these texts here, here's three examples. The sacrifices of the wicked. So those who go and they come in and the sacrifices of the wicked are an abomination. Abomination is a word we'll see frequently in this series. It is the strongest term that you can have for hate. It's abominable. It's, it's evil. It's disgusting. It's vile. If you saw it, you would want to wretch. It's terrible. The sacrifices of the wicked are an abomination. He says to his people, I despise, I hate, I despise your feast days. And this is attached to the practice of justice within the people, within the midst. People are going hungry. People are not being taken care of. The, 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 the family of God is not taking care of the family of God. And he says, you've come together to worship me, and yet you've neglected the things that matter most. I hate it. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates them. If you say you love God, but you hate your neighbor. If you say you love God, but you despise the poor in practice. If you say you love God, but harbor wickedness in your heart. If you, if you take with one hand the cup, and you take with the other hand from your neighbor or your place of employment, or from the poor. If you gather for prayer, and yet you make plans of insidious, vain, or vile nature. I will go home and I will do this. You say to yourself, if you gather to sing praises to God, to worship and glorify our Father, and you leave this place and in your car you lay curses and abuse upon your wife or your children or your husband or your neighbors or your enemies, if you practice these things of religious activity, yet your life bears none of the fruit of peace, you are a liar. And God despises all of your religious activity. I am young in comparison to some of the birthdays that are happening today. <laughs> I've been in ministry for, this will be maybe not quite my 15th year, uh, but I grew up in the church. And so I've had many experiences over the past 15 years of, of families and teenagers and singles and marrieds and all the time they come and they sit down and they'll, they'll say to me something like, yeah, well, you know, I know you don't know that we're going through a hard time and I always say, yeah, I know you're going through a hard time. I'm, I'm sort of watered away a little bit. I'm like, yeah, I know you watered away a little bit. Because you can't fake it, guys. You can't really fake it. All this nicety that we have that allows us to get through this church service and we can go home and we can feel good that we've done our religious duty or we'll be like, man, they didn't find out about this and we, we, we move through, through it. And all of that is, is, is meaningless. What God is looking for is a people who are going to be real with one another, who are going to be zealous for truth, who are going to confront one another, who are going to wrestle together as we, we seek out the meaning of what it is to follow God, that is what he is looking for. God hates these things. He says to this church, you're naked. You're despicable. You're wretched. You're poor. I mean, that's, 
intense, isn't it? And as a believer who takes my faith seriously, I don't want that said of me. I don't want that said of me. My favorite story in the Bible, in the Old Testament anyway, is a story found in Numbers about this guy named Phineas. My favorite story. Uh, the Israelites have wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, you know, you know that, whole, that whole bit, and they, they camp at this place with all these Moabites living around them. And so they camp at this place, so it's by a river, and there's a mountain near there called Peor, and they worshipped a god at Peor called the Baal, or the Lord of Peor, the Lord of that mountain. And the Israelites are there, and they're there for a little bit, and they notice how pretty the Moabites are. Those girls are lookers, right? And so they begin to whore after them and bring them into the camp. And, and one, as, as always happens, as all sin kind of functions this same way, it begins with this sort of fleshly passion, it could be food, it could be sex, it could be drink, it could be any, you know, any, any number of like flesh. It could be laziness, all these things, fleshly passions. It begins there, but pretty soon these Moabite women bring the men to the Baal of Peor and they begin to worship with them there at the mountain, the foot of the mountain. Because all sin begins with the flesh, but all sin leads to idolatry. And, and as they begin to worship at this mountain, God is incensed. And he lays a, a plague upon the people. And people begin to die. And he tells Moses, Moses, you need to take the chiefs of the people, so the chiefs of the clans who have allowed this iniquity to transpire, you need to take them and you need to kill them, each and every one of them. This is brutal news and people are dying and the people are, are worshiping and, 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 and committing all of these heinous sins. And, and Moses, we have this moment of desperation where Moses and, and some of the elders who haven't and priests who haven't given in, they're at the, at the gate of the tent of meeting, the meeting places, their, their tabernacle, the house of the Lord as it were. And so they're at the, the gate of this of this tent, and they're, they're weeping and they're wailing and they're on their knees and they're praying to God, God, what do we do? What do we do? And an Israelite walks past them hand in hand with a Moabite woman taking her to his tent. And Phineas is outraged. The zeal for the holiness of God burns in his heart and he is enraged. And he takes into his own hands what God has commanded Moses to do and he grabs a spear and as the man and the woman enter into the tent, he spears them both and kills them. That's the PC story for the morning. <laughs> that is intense, isn't it? That's intense. The text of scripture says that God turned away from his wrath specifically because Phineas's zeal because he was jealous for God we live in a society that is a pluralistic society that means that we have a society that that is accepting of different groups for the peace and good of society and societally 
that's, that's good in the sense that I'm, I'm glad that, you know, we're not, we're not uh, having religious wars in the heart of America or something like that, right? That's a good thing. But one of the things that this tends to do is it begins to flatten all things and say all things are equal. And Christians begin to be uh, convinced of this sort of insidiously through culture and through education and just through our lives as we deal with people. Everyone's view is the same. And the scriptures are clear. Everyone's view is not the same. We are making exclusive claims about who God is, what God wants, and how you get to him. And what this text teaches me is not that you should throw stones or spears at Moabites. I want to be clear about that. Of everyone in the room, I'm the most passionate advocate of nonviolence. What this text does teach me that we have forgotten is that God is serious. That faith is serious. That heaven and hell hang in the balance and they are serious. That the judgment of God is serious. That death is serious. That life is serious. And we live also in the culture right now, especially at a time where we mock everything. And everything is kind of up for grabs. And the more irreverent you can be, the funnier you are. And Christian people should be people that are serious. Serious about the love of God. Isn't it interesting, and this is an important note, that, that Phineas is not outraged that the Moabites are worshiping their God at Peor. Did you notice that? Just keep that in mind. He's not outraged that Moabites are living like Moabites. What's he outraged about? Israelites living like Moabites. So if you're a guest here today, a lot of this I know is sort of in-house talk. But this is about the honor of God in the household of God because the household of God is the burning fire by which the world is lit. And if we are not the people who bear that fire, no one else will. And so if we're asking the question, what is it that God loves? What is it that God is after? What is it first? It is first this. I think, I, I believe this. If you ask me, Jordan, what is the one thing that if I invested my time, my passion, my thought, my prayer life into, the one thing that would help me love God, steer clear of sin, and evangelize the world, it would not be all of the sins that we could list off, because we've got all kinds of them, right, we could list. It would be this, be zealous for God. Because that's the insidiousness of the religion that we have. Because you all can come in here and we can do our bit here and we can go home convinced that, well, we've done our part and we're okay and everything's fine. And yet there's no fire there. And if there's no fire there, then what's going to stop you from going astray? What's going to call you back to God? What's going to bring your friends, your neighbors, your enemies into into a right relationship with God so that they too might be saved? Because again... We are talking about that word saved, aren't we? We're talking about life and death. We're talking about things that matter. God says, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them. In that day, Phineas made atonement for his people. Zeal comes from growth. And let me suggest to you what that might look like. 
Two things to apply this to our lives. How do we increase and cultivate a zeal for God? We begin by cultivating a love for God, which I will call to fill the edges of your life with God. Y'all are busy people. I know it. And if I said, meet here every morning at 6 a.m., I wouldn't be here because that's an ungodly hour. But you wouldn't be either. And if I said, we need to, we need to have three more church services, like, I, I get you. You're like, man, I can't make all that stuff. What you have is you have snatches of time in your day. You have edges and you have cracks. And I want to encourage you to fill those edges and times, those cracks in your day with God. You're in the car with your wife, turn off the radio and pray. You're in the car with your kids, turn off the radio and pray. You're in the car by yourself, turn off the radio and pray. Or turn on the radio to Christian music, whatever it is that inspires you. What is it that inspires you to have love for God? Chase that. What inspires you to say, man, I love God more, and man, I feel more of his presence? What, what is that thing? Maybe for some of you it is singing. Some of you it's, it's head knowledge. Some of you it's prayer. Some of you it's gathering with other people. Whatever it is, chase and pursue that and fill those cracks. Fill those five, those ten, those little moments in your day. Fill those cracks with God that you might cultivate more and more love and not just in one big chunk of time on a Sunday morning but throughout your week so that when you look back on your week next Sunday you could say, I see God all over that week. And the second thing I would say would be show up next Sunday and learn more about what God loves and hates. That we can cultivate in our lives more of what God loves and what God hates Along that note, there is a warning for next Sunday. Next Sunday, I will be talking about God and sexuality. And so if you have children, and you, you know, there's, some of you have certain age things that you might not want your kids to hear, you might want them to hear, I won't be overly explicit or anything, but that's what we'll be talking about. What does God have to say about these things? That might be a two-week thing, I'm not really sure yet. We'll be walking through some of the biblical texts, which is kind of so you know. Application then is this, Titus 2, 14. God, who gave himself for us to redeem us from lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. I love that. As we come to a conclusion this morning, I want to sort of bring us all the way back full circle back to the text that we read in Hosea, because I noticed a line in here that I thought was very interesting. Uh, God is speaking, and he says these, these lovely words. You think of the inadequacy of, what's the word I want to use? Think of how high God is and how small I am, you are, we are. God says, I will allure her. I will win her. I will... I will reach out to her. This is God's love for us. He will allure us and bring us into the wilderness that we might be alone with God. And God will speak tenderly to us and give us good gifts. And then this, this sort of second section of Hosea uh, chapter 2, verse 15 says this, And she shall answer in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. I want you to think for a moment about your conversion. About your conversion. About that moment where you said, yes, Jesus is Lord. About that time when you said, man, I, 
I give it all to you, all to Jesus, I surrender. I don't know if it was at camp. I don't know if it was you know, here or some other church. I don't know if it was at a big... I mean, that moment when the love of God so stirred in your heart that it ignited a fire that you said to, to God, I can resist you no more. Take me. When was that? When was that? What I love about this text is that God is saying, I'm going to revive that passion. That passion when I first rescued you and saved you and brought you out of Egypt, I'm going to revive that. And that passion that you had for me, I'm going to bring back and remind you of so that zeal, that fire, that light, that burning blaze that took you out, that love you felt for me, you feel it all again. And I want to call you this morning to remember that, to remember your baptism, and to pray with all fervor today, tomorrow, and every day after, God, ignite that fire in me again. Make me a blazing light for your glory. Let's stand and praise the God that we serve.